Good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program. The Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools. We're here every week, rain or shine, holidays or not. Here, this is definitely a holiday, but we're still here and we've been here all through the Christmas because our cause is too important to let go. Uh, we are here to defend and promote public education. And uh, we've got an interesting program, I think, for you today. Uh, when people talk about state aid to private schools, because we're very concerned about the uh, what's happening to the private sector and how our money is going out the deep end into the leaky sieve, some might call it, into the private sector, uh, the private religious sector, um, the, the total indirect grants is, you know, upwards of $20 billion a year, which is a pretty big slice of the budget, especially when uh, public schools are going begging. But um, that's only the tip of the iceberg. Private religious schools are listed as charities, and they not only uh, get exemptions from large numbers of taxation and other goodies, Many of them do not have to actually report their financial statements to the Charities Commission, uh, which means that the iceberg itself is really a very, very unknown quantity. But this is taxpayers' money, which is not being paid, remember. This is a taxation expenditure. Now, back in 2007, there was a lot of work done on this by Max Wallace. Actually, I had an article published too called Pencil Revisited, but um, that was a bit later. And a lot of people have been questioning this charities exemption of private uh, religious schools, many of which are fabulously wealthy. So Max Wallace questioned it in 2007, but the issue has raised its head again. And so our um, press release 963, potentially billions of dollars unreported due to religious charities exemption, uh, Oliver's going to tell us a lot more. Over to you, Oliver. Thank you, Jane. In his provocative book published in 2007, The Purple Economy, Supernatural Charities, Tax and the State, Max Wallace from the Secular Society argues democracies should be republics characterized by constitutional separations of church and state. Wallace argues the separation of secular authority from supernatural authority should be understood as the first separation of powers in a democracy, prior to and equivalent to the separations between the executive legislature and the judiciary. The failure of democracies to fully realize this distinction constitutionally has seen churches become immensely wealthy as a consequence of their centuries-old tax-exempt status as charities that advance religion. Their wealth is now a recognisable financial phenomenon, the purple economy. But following the French principle, Wallace argues it is not the role of state to advance religion. Ancient exemptions from taxation for the supernatural charities who are under no obligation to spend their wealth on good works are not appropriate for the 21st century. They should be treated for tax purposes the same as other taxpayers. The failure of governments to formalise separation of church and state has contributed to the significant wealth of supernatural charities, largely as a function of the, of the exemptions. These are effectively concealed tithes on all taxpayers. At the same time, church attendance has plummeted. Central to supernatural proselytising 
is their lobbying success in achieving more public money for private religious schools. Public education has been betrayed by compliant politicians from both sides as they run what are effectively soft theocracies, democracies compromised by constitutional monarchy and or supernatural charities and their tax exemptions. Max Wallace was pointing to the fact that the current 20 odd billion of taxpayer funds currently pouring into the private religious education sector is in fact the tip of the state aid iceberg. Many more billions are provided in taxation exemptions, otherwise known as taxation expenditures. And it is almost impossible to quantify these exemptions since many charities do not have to report them to the Charities Commission anyway. The issue has recently been raised again by Cy Gladman of the Rationalist Society in an article entitled, Potentially Billions of Dollars Unreported Due to Religious Charities Exemption. Gladman writes, evidence given to the Senate estimates hearings last month underscores the need for an inquiry into the operation and scope of the tax exemption for entities claiming to be religious, says the Rationalist Society of Australia. When asked whether there were potentially billions of dollars going unreported with basic religious charities exempt from submitting financial reports to tax authorities, an official complaint from the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission, ACNC, responded, that's correct. Under laws passed in 2012, Basic religious charities, which qualify for charity status solely for advancing religion, do not need to lodge financial details or comply with other government standard required of other charities. In September, RSA President Dr. Meredith Doig wrote to charities Minister Dr. Andrew Lee, arguing that there was public interest in having an inquiry into the operation and scope of the tax exemption for entities claiming to be religious. She said such an inquiry could give consideration to the appropriateness of exemptions from financial reporting for basic religious charities. Also, it should examine whether it will be appropriate to remove the advancement of religion from the charity subtypes, whether any commercial operations should be eligible for this exemption, and whether there should be a requirement that religious organisations demonstrate public benefit, as exists in the United Kingdom, rather than this being automatically presumed. At Senate estimates last month, Green Senator David Shoebridge told representatives of the Australian Taxation Office and the ACNC that it was a fraught environment to have billions of dollars moving through the economy with almost no reporting to taxation authorities. Officials from the ATO confirmed for Senator Shoebridge that there were no limitations in regards to the volume of money or the size of the charity for the use of the basic religious charity exemption. The ACNC noted that 8,210 basic religious charities provided an annual information statement in 2020, but 7,719 utilised the exemption in relation to providing financial information. In 2018, Robert Fitzgerald AM, a former commissioner from the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse, called for the exemptions to be scrapped, saying they sent a poor signal for the wider community that some charities deserved special treatment simply because of their religious status. In response to the RSA's letter in September, Dr. Lee said the Albanese government had committed to developing a charity sector blueprint and strategy to boost giving. He said that during those processes, 
the government will be able to consider proposals that support our valuable community building charities. Dr. Doig had also pointed to numerous media articles from recent years about alleged taxation evasion involving religious organizations, including Church of Scientology, the Mormon Church, and Hillsong. In his response, Dr. Lee acknowledged the concern that some organizations might be inappropriately accessing income tax and other tax concessions available to charities, and said such concessions should only be available to those pursuing charitable purposes. Back well, to the you, problem Jim. there is in the um, the problem is in the actual definition of charity, and that goes back to an 1899 uh, pencil case in the United Kingdom. So perhaps we'd better uh, put that public interest test into uh, the definition of char all charities, including religious charities. But yes, um, it's very good that the issue is coming up again, and. Um, It'll be interesting to see what Dr. Lee does about it. He's a very interesting economist, that gentleman. But um, I think that's enough for now. We'll have a little bit of a break. We'll come back to uh, talk about uh, public education and its funding. It's all about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason to scream out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the Constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not, you know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got, but it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 8377. corner of the land. Womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio 855am and streaming live at 3cr.org.au Well, uh, listeners, we hope you're still with us or listening to the Dogs Program on 3CR, which, by the way, is a charity that has to... Uh, report to the Charities Commission, I would imagine, and every single bit of their, uh, their books would have to be open. But um, if you want to give uh, money to 3CR, because it is a charity with a public purpose or a public radio station, then you can get a taxation exemption. But um, let's think now about the actual funding of public education. Most people are on holidays, but uh, I'm not so sure that the Australian Education Union is because Karina um, Haythorpe, the president, has a very interesting press release, a statement on public school funding uh, by the Australian Education Union, and here it is. Every child has the right to a high-quality education delivered by qualified and professional teachers in their local neighbourhood. 
It is Australia's public education system and its dedicated workforce that upholds this right. But a decade of chronic underfunding of public schools has put this right at risk. The vision of the 2011 Gonski Review, in which all schools would be funded on the basis of student need to a minimum of a schooling resource standard, plus additional loadings for disadvantaged, has never been realised in public education. And in 2017, the previous coalition government stopped making any contribution to public school capital works and entrenched inequitable funding arrangements for public schools. At the last election, federal Labor promised to deliver a pathway to full and fair funding for public schools. To achieve this, a minimum of 100% of the SRS, that's the uh, schooling resource standard, must be delivered. Resources delayed are resources delined. Today's announcement, that was on the 20th of December, of the extension of the current National School Reform Agreement for 12 months, delays and therefore denies students in public schools the funding they need, particularly children with a disadvantaged background. There has now been a generation of children who have been denied full and fair funding for their entire school lives. This can no longer continue. The review of funding that will be conducted in 2023 must deliver on federal Labor's commitment to full and fair funding for public schools and confirm the responsibility of all governments to ensure public schools are funded to a minimum of 100% of the SRS from 2024. The Australian Education Union, as the voice of public school principals, teachers and education support staff, will accept nothing less. Well, good on you, Karina Haythorpe. Uh, the dogs agree with that, but of course, we think that all of the money that's given to the private schools should come, to come back to the public sector as well. And that would be lovely, lovely billions, wouldn't it? Karina Haythorpe is not alone. And there are many, many facts and figures to back up her claims. Uh, not least the tremendous research that's done by Trevor Cobald of Save Our Schools in Canberra. And Dale has his latest offering. Over to you, Dale. Thanks, Jean. I've got an article here by Trevor Cobold from Save Our Schools, uh, Shocking Inequalities in School Results. The following is a summary of a new research paper by Save Our Schools analysing the latest NAPLAN results. The latest NAPLAN results show shocking inequalities in school outcomes between highly advantaged and disadvantaged students in Australia. Very high proportions of low socioeconomic status, SES, Indigenous and remote area students do not achieve national literacy and numeracy standards compared to very small proportions of high SES students. By year nine, low SES, Indigenous and remote area students are several years of learning behind their high SES peers. 
there has been very little progress in reducing the learning gaps between the rich and poor over the last decade or so. The paper shows that 29% of low SES Year 9 students were below the national reading standard in 2022, 38% were below the writing standard and 16% below the numeracy standard. One third of Indigenous students were below the reading standard, 44% below the writing standard, 19% below the numeracy standard. Nearly one quarter of remote area students were below the reading standard, 35% below the writing standard and 13% below the numeracy standard. By contrast, 3% of Year 9 high SES students did not achieve the reading standard. 7% did not achieve the writing standard and 2% did not achieve the numeracy standard. These are shocking inequities. For example, it is totally unacceptable that the percentage of low SES year 9 students not achieving the national reading standard is nine times that of high SES students. And the proportion of Indigenous students not achieving the standard is 11 times that of high SES students. Remote area, eight times. Year five low SES Indigenous and remote students are about two years behind year five high SES students in reading, writing and numeracy. Year nine low SES Indigenous and remote area students are four years or more behind high SES students in reading, writing and numeracy. The NAPLAN scores of Year 9 low SES and Indigenous are similar to or below those of Year 5 high SES students, while those of remote area students are only slightly above. There has been no learning improvement amongst low SES students since 2008 and declines in many cases. None of the 18 indicators of learning showed any improvement. There was no reduction in the proportion of Year 5 and Year 9 low, ES, low SES students not achieving the Reading, Writing and Numeracy National Standard. NAPLAN scores fell in Year 5 writing and in all Year 9 achievement gaps between high and low SES students either increased or showed no st statistically significant change. There were several improvements in learning by Indigenous students. Learning improved for 11 out of 18 indicators. The percentage not achieving national standard decreased in Year 5 reading and numeracy and in Year 9 numeracy. NAPLAN scores also increased significantly in Year 5 reading and numeracy and in Year 9 numeracy. Achievement gaps between high SES and Indigenous students decreased at both year levels in all domains except for Year 9 reading. There were some learning improvements among remote area students, but generally there was no significant changes or decreases in learning. Only five of the 18 indicators showed any improvement. There was no significant change in the percentage not achieving national standards in Year 5 and increased proportions below standard in Year 9 reading and writing. NAPLAN scores increased in Year 5 reading and numeracy and Year 9 numeracy, but there was no improvement in the other learning domains in Year 5 and 9. There was no reduction in the achievement gap 
between high SES and remote area students in year five and nine reading. The gaps in year nine writing and numeracy fell, but this was mainly due to declining results for high SES students. These are an appalling inequity that have continued for far too long. They are an indictment on our current education system, governments and society. Australia has a highly inequitable, discriminatory, class-ridden education system that makes nonsense of the idea that we are an egalitarian country. Funding failures by successive Commonwealth and state governments are a major factor contributing to these educational inequalities. Over 80% of low SES, Indigenous and remote area students attend public schools. Despite this, government funding increases since 2009 have heavily favoured private schools. Combined government funding per student adjusted for inflation increased by $830 per student in public schools compared to $2,839 per student in independent and $2,490 per student in Catholic schools. In percentage terms, the increase in funding for independent schools, 45%, was nearly six times that of public schools, just 7.8%. And the increase for Catholic schools, 32.2% was over three times that of public schools. Public schools across Australia are vastly underfunded to meet the challenges they face. They are currently funded on average at 87.1% of the SRS, the schooling resource standard, which is your very base, base, the least that you need to run a school. Public schools in all states except the ACT are funded at well under their SRS. They will remain underfunded until at least 2029 under the current funding agreements. By contrast, private schools who serve only a small minority of disadvantaged students are significantly overfunded. On average, they're currently funded at 104.3 of their SRS and will remain overfunded for the rest of the decade. Private schools in all states except the Northern Territory are funded at over 100% of their SRS. The decision by the Education Minister's meeting to extend the current National Schools Reform Agreement to 2024 is disastrous for public schools because the current funding agreement is blatantly biased in favour of private schools. First, the funding agreement only provides for public schools to be funded at 95% of their SRS till 2029, while private schools are funded at over 100% of their SRS until at least 2029. Second, the agreement allows state governments claim certain non-school expenditures as part of its share of the SRS of public schools, but not for private schools. The effect is that public schools will be funded at less than 91% of their SRS until at least 2029, while private schools are funded at over 100% of their SRS for the rest of the decade. At present, there is no indication when public schools will be fully funded. 
Numerous studies show that money matters in education, especially for disadvantaged students. Yet public schools and the vast majority of disadvantaged students continue to be denied the funding needed to achieve greater equity in education outcomes. The decision of the education minister's meeting is a betrayal of public schools and disadvantaged students. It will ensure that the appalling inequities in school outcomes between rich and poor will continue for even longer. Back to you, Jean. Well, that's uh, Trevor Cobald, and uh, he's a great uh, financial analyst, as Ray Nelson used to be. We're very lucky to have him there working away week after week in Canberra and giving us material that we can put over 3CR on the DOGS program. But we'll have a bit of a break now from all the facts and figures, and we'll come back with something even more interesting. Do you need to renew your subscription? Make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03 9419 each weekday between 1 and 5pm and talk to a staff member. That's 03 9419 3CR Community Radio, here to stay. Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. For an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription, you can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card, and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Well, welcome back to the Dogs Program listeners and uh, we've got another very interesting article for you. In spite of the fact that our public schools are underfunded, grossly underfunded, particularly in comparison with the private religious sector, uh, there's great work going on because we have great teachers and uh, they are dedicated indeed. And uh, we have a very interesting article entitled, We Shouldn't Be Doing Well. Disadvantaged children shouldn't be doing well, but some of them are. Over to you, Oliver. Thank you, Jean. More than half of West Wilson's Year 12 students have received early university offers a jump from 2016, when only 10% of the cohort continued to tertiary education. 
Specialized programs at West Wilson High School have helped its students academically, but many public schools face an uphill battle for funding. Mostafa Rakwani writes, at a small high school on the outskirts of Newcastle, 63 year 12 students have their pictures, goals and aspirations pinned to the principal's wall. Jessica Lett, who completed her HSC this year and received an ATAR of 61.95 on Thursday, says this has been a source of inspiration for students at West Wilson High, which has had a remarkable turnaround in its academic results. Every time we go to her office, we would see where we're at and what we wanted to achieve, which was great because it made it really personal. Let says, it was good to know our principal actually supports us. Let achieved two band fives in a HSC and felt pretty good about her result. While the school did not exceed its results from 2021, more than 60% of the year 12 cohort were in the top three bands for some of their subjects. More than half of the students on university pathways are confident they will be starting tertiary study next year. And that number is a significant jump from 2016 when only 10% of students were progressing to tertiary education. Overall, I'm pretty happy with it, particularly the band fives I got in English, advanced and community and family studies. So I'm happy with that, Let said. She is one of the many students at the school who is relieved their futures don't depend on ATAR results, with more than half of the year receiving early university offers. The principal, Crystal Bevan, says the wall embodies the strategy of the school's Ignite program, a unique structure that offers bespoke mentorship to each year 12 student. It's really about understanding the personal story behind every student, Bevan says. Every young person has a mentor and then their goals and aspirations before they even hit year 12. And then we make sure that there's a personalized program of support that sits behind them. West Wilson has a, has a large proportion of students from low socioeconomic backgrounds with its index of community socioeducational advantage coming in well below the national average. There's been a real cultural shift in our community, Bevan says. Traditionally, we were a community that had jobs in the mining industry. And then as that mining industry shifted over time, so did the job opportunities for our families and our young people. The year 12 cohort has nearly doubled since 2016, rising from 35 students to 63 sitting in the HSC in 2022. More than half were on track to become the first person in their families to receive a higher school certificate. Everything tells us we shouldn't be doing well, Devin says. Our ability to pivot and personalize learning and well-being Support to meet the needs of the student and also their family became very important. I think the big ticket here for us has been aspirations and actually opening the door to young people whose parents or grandparents didn't have the same academic pathway. And just sharing and informing and supporting our families to understand that this is a potential pathway. As part of the program, the school has instituted a scholarship team to hunt down opportunities for their students. Last year, students at West Wallsend accessed more than $200,000 worth of scholarships. Back to you, Jane. Yes, uh, thank you. Well, that's a good news story, isn't it? And uh, we've got a few more good news stories for you because Dale's going to now take us over to America. Thanks, Jane. And, yeah, we've got some stuff from the Diane Ravitch blog, uh, first of which is Welcome 2023 with sound advice from Nancy Bailey. Start the new year right with constructive common sense ideas from Nancy Bailey. Nancy is a retired teacher with more knowledge in the smallest digit of her smallest finger than the average, quote, 
reformer. Unlike the reform sloganeers, she truly puts children first. Nancy starts with a few sensible suggestions of things you can do, then proceeds to identify what matters most in building good schools that meet the needs of children. She opens. As we approach 2023, let's make this a year to unite for the common good, to re-establish and promote public education for all our children. A public school system relies on a country that values education for all its children, no matter family religious beliefs, the colour of one's skin, gender identity, sexual orientation or disability. Americans collectively fund public education because those schools belong to us. They reflect the never-ending societal changes that make us better people. In your community, look to see how you can serve the students in your public school. Get to know your local schools and their difficulties by attending school boards. Seek to support, not break down the school. You can volunteer to help a teacher, tutor a child, attend a school function like a school play or school sports event. Ask what skills you might have that could be useful for the school school or children. Be a part of career day and explain your work. See if you can support sports, the band or other extracurricular activities. Seek to shore up your local school by helping fund a school initiative if possible. Attend school board meetings seeking to show support and brainstorm ways you and others can get behind your public schools. We care about everybody's child through public education. We know that the annoying teen next door may grow up to discover a cure for diseases or they could be the plumber who fixes our pipes during a winter freeze. As a nation, we believe that all our children matter, not just for what they will do someday for us, but because they are our children. There are also many reasons for Americans from both political parties to hold hands regarding their public schools because we all want our children to get the best education possible. If crazy extremists are showing up at your local school board meetings, participate and protect your local schools. Consider running for the board yourself. That While that was from the Diane Ravitch blog about American schools, it's very much what the dogs are talking about when we talk about school communities, becoming part of your school community to help create the change you want to see. We've all heard people say, oh, I wouldn't send my dog to the local public school and then opt out to some elite pocket of privilege But not everyone has that option, and that option is not good for society at large in the long long run. Our final great state school of the year, TC, Templestowe College, is a perfect example of what a school community can do to create the school the community needs. It was all all the decisions made to create last week's Great State School of the Week, which was the final one of the year, were made by the school community, the parents, the citizens, 
the people on the council, the contributors, the people who cared enough to say, this isn't working for our children. Let's find a way for it to work, not only with our children, but for our children to thrive within this community. And it's within every community's grasp. It just takes effort and a willingness to do something that is larger than ourselves, that is for something larger than ourselves, that is for the good of community, of society at large. And the next article I've got here is from The Guardian uh, by Maya Young, and it's titled Face It Head On, Connecticut Makes Climate Change Studies Compulsory, Enshrining the Curriculum in Law insulates the subject from budget cuts and culture wars related to the climate crisis. Starting next July, Connecticut will become one of the first states in America to mandate climate change studies across its public schools as part of its science curriculum. The new law passed earlier this year comes as part of the state's attempt to address concerns over the short duration and in some cases absence of climate change studies in classrooms. The requirement follows in the footsteps of New Jersey, which in 2020 became the first state to mandate K-12 climate change education across its school districts. Currently, nearly 90% of public schools across Connecticut include climate change studies in their curriculums. However, by mandating it as part of state law from grades five to 12, climate education will effectively become protected from budget cuts and climate-denying political views at a time when education in the US has become a serious culture war battleground. The conservative turn in our country often starts at a very hyper-local level of local town boards of education. There is this push towards anti-intellectualism, anti-science, anti-reason and I didn't want local boards of education to have the power to overturn the curriculum and say climate change is too political, Connecticut State Representative Christine Palm told The Guardian. Palm, who is Vice Chair of Connecticut General Assembly's Environment Committee, first launched her legislative efforts to pass a climate change education mandate in 2018. Through various surveys and petitions, Palm found that to many students and educators, climate change education is either not being taught at all in schools or not being taught enough. Anecdotally, I knew that there was no uniform approach and that I felt there should be, Palm explained. She went on to introduce her climate education bill annually over the last four years until it was finally included in the state budget implementer bill earlier this year. In the public schools, the program of instruction offered shall include at least the following subject matter as taught by legally qualified teachers. Science, which shall include the climate change curriculum. The current requirement reads, marking a change in language from which may to which shall. It sounds like a simple change, but legislatively makes all the difference between a law and an option, said Palm. 
The Next Generation Science Standards, NGSS, a set of K-12 science content standards, are currently adopted by Connecticut and include standards pertaining to climate change studies, which more educators will rely on as the requirement kicks in next year. So far, only 20 states and D.C. have adopted the NGSS. They are based on a framework for K-12 science education and the National Academies reports, which are developed by scientists and educators defining not just what's important to know, but what is the best way for kids to learn science, said Vanessa Volbrink, an Associate Director at Next Gen Science. I think a lot of the time, those who might oppose the teaching of climate science might believe that the standards are kind of subjective or would prevent true objective instruction, but it's really the other way around, said Volbrink. These standards really emphasise student data analysis and evidence-based argumentation. This emphasis means in order to meet the standards, students are demonstrating critical thinking skills. They're making these objective arguments with data and evidence, she explained. Depending on the grade levels, the standards vary. According to the NGSS website, middle school students who demonstrate understandings of the human impact on the environment can apply scientific scientific principles to design a method for monitoring and minimising a human impact on the, evi- on the environment, among other abilities. Meanwhile, one of the learning goals high school students are expected to meet in regards to climate studies includes the ability to use a computational representation to illustrate the relationships between among earth systems and how these relationships are being modified due to human activity. To help educators update their curriculums, Connecticut's Department of Environmental Protection, the DEEP, or DEEP, is providing the state's Department of Education with various resources, including those that will complement the NGSS. A primary focus, focus for DEEP is to provide hands-on investigations and data connections that reflect local needs and actions. This will make things much more tangible and useful for teachers as they apply next generation science standards and common core, deep environmental educator Susan Quincy said, citing another set of academic standards focusing on maths and English language arts. As the state prepares for next year's curriculum changes, Experts remain cautious about the ways to relay information on the human-caused climate crisis to young students. A global survey conducted last year among 10,000 students and young people across 10 10 countries, including the US, found that 59% of respondents were very or extremely worried about the climate crisis. Over 50% reported feeling emotions, including sadness, anxiousness, anger, powerlessness, and guilt. 75% of respondents said that they were thinking the future is frightening. With climate-related anxiety increasing, spreading among young people, many educators are adamant about not only teaching issues, but also solutions. Working with these kids, 
some of the things I think are most important is making sure children get not only accurate information, but also hopeful information. We need to make sure that kids learn about solutions and creativity and, re and resilience as much as they learn about causes and effects, said Lauren Madden, a science educator and professor at the College of New Jersey. Madden also stresses the importance of equity-focused conversations when discussing the climate crisis in classrooms. We have to acknowledge that climate change does not affect all people equally. There are kids in lower income communities, communities of color and immigrant communities that experience flooding and power outages and things like that in a much more magnified ways than others, she said. It's critical that when we're talking to kids that at that upper elementary, middle, middle school, high school level, we're ensuring that we're coming from an equity-based perspective. With curriculums getting updated, educators such as Margaret Wang are also em emphasising contextual and interdisciplinary learning. As the Chief Operating Officer of Subject to Climate, an online platform that offers teachers various materials on climate on the climate crisis, Wang helps other educators integrate climate change into their existing teaching materials. Climate change is a highly interdisciplinary subject of, of sciences, but there are also elements of writing such as being able to analyse media literacy. There are elements of math such as being able to calculate and grasp its effects over time using statistics and science. There's art as a way to mobilise collective action towards, she said. With less than a year left now until climate change education is integrated across all of Connecticut's public schools, lawmakers such as Palm are well aware of the pushback that such a mandate will receive. Palm said she tends to not get involved in matters involving local boards of education However, she has in recent years noticed the impact of parents pushing back against educators over certain subjects such as LGBTQIA plus rights, slavery and the climate crisis. In my experience, at least traditionally, local boards of education have been extremely bipartisan, hardworking and thoughtful administrators. But increasingly, that's being affected by these vigilante groups of parents coming in and saying they don't want kids learning about these subjects because it's too threatening to their delusional way of life, said Palm. We're ab we absolutely have got to face it head on, and it starts when the children are very young. We need to arm them with the tools to be part of a solution to a problem they had no hand in creating. Back to you, Jean. Well, thank you, Dale, for stepping in and doing the uh, American American section of our program. Uh, Jeff's having a well-earned holiday, but he will be back next week uh, with his, his research. But um, we're continuing with our good news story because it's almost time for our great state school and Dale's going to take us there also. Every week on the Doctor Program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. Yeah! 
Great State School of the Week is Elphinstone Primary School. It's a little bit different. We've got an article about it for you this week titled Last One Standing. Principal left alone on the campus after tiny school's COVID outbreak. Elphinstone Primary School had planned an end-of-year gathering this week, but it ended up with a party of one. A COVID-19 outbreak has spread through the school community after a three-day trip last week, leaving Principal Brendan Stewart the only person on campus. I'm a full-time teaching principal and we've got another full-time teacher and we've got a part-time teacher and two educational support staff, he said. One by one, they all tested positive to COVID over the weekend. So I'm the last one standing. And not only that, we've had quite a significant number of students testing positive also over the weekend. Stuart said about half of the school's 21 students had tested positive to COVID. A couple turned up to class on Monday morning, but the parents quickly changed their minds and withdrew them, leaving the principal on his own. The government school, south of Bendigo in central Victoria, had taken an excursion to Ballarat, Bendigo and Hanging Rock last week. Stuart drove the minibus, but he has so far thus avoided the virus. The kids were in a confined space all week, probably explaining the ferocity of the whole thing, he said. The school's final assembly was held on Monday, celebrating its three year, three year six graduates. They, unfortunately, didn't get their last day, Stewart said. The assembly brought back memories of Victoria's long lockdowns during the first two years of the pandemic. We revisited Zoom, he said, back to the old days. The ironic thing is the teacher we farewelled on Monday started day one of lockdown. So she was a graduate teacher who started on the second term of 2020, which was online, and she finished her farewells online yesterday. Statewide remote learning is a thing of the past, but COVID-19 and other illnesses remained a challenge for schools this year. More than 200 Victorian children have been hospitalised with COVID in the past three months, according to recent data. Andrew Dalgleish, president of the Victorian Principals Association, expressed his sympathy for the Elphinstone school community. This is COVID normal, but it's the last thing you need before Christmas, he said. Schools have worked as hard as they can to manage it, not just minimising infections, but staff shortages caused by illnesses. Advice on managing COVID in schools has changed this year. Staff and students are advised to report positive results to their school and isolate for at least five days. COVID-19 vaccines are no longer mandatory for staff or visitors. And schools are advised to use air purifiers to open windows and doors to maximise ventilation and to make face masks available. Victorian Chief Health Officer Brett Sutton said last week the COVID wave seemed to have plateaued, but he warned case numbers would rise over the festive season. The current COVID-19 wave appears to have plateaued with several key measures, including active cases, cases in hospitals and cases in intensive care, decreasing slightly for the first time in almost eight weeks, he said. There were 
24,652 COVID cases reported in Victoria last week, an 11% drop on the previous week. On average, there were 3,522 new cases reported each day, slowly down from 3,970 cases the pre previous week. 84 COVID-related deaths were reported to the Department of Health last week, an average of 12 a day. Those statistics were reported on the 20th of De December. But we'd just like to say, Elphinstone Primary, congratulations on getting through the year, especially under such a, a tough end of year. We're sorry to the students who get, didn't get to see their final year seven days out, but good luck for high school next year. A little bit more about Elphinstone Primary. Elphinstone Primary School is a small community school in the heart of the Victorian goldfields at the entrance to the Mount Alexander Shire, which centres around Castlemaine. They're in a beautiful setting with well-developed grounds set on 1.5 hectares on the original Calder Highway with magnificent views of Mount Alexander to the north. The school community takes pride in the school environment and have worked hard to ensure that it's appealing, stimulating and safe. Their students are involved in many educational activities, both in, in and outside the class, classroom. They're also involved in many specialist classroom activities and programs, as well as inter-school ventures and a wide range of camps and excursions. The school remains closely tied to the district schools through the small schools cluster. Regular planning meetings occur and this contributes to a commonality in curriculum, language and goals. And some facts and figures from ACARA. The school has 21 pupils. Its six-year value is 1,042, which is well above the average of 1,000. The students are representative of an integrated community. 29% have parents from the highest income quartile, 24% are in the second highest, 19% from the third quartile and 23 from the poorest income quartile in the community. None of the pupils speak a language other than English and there's none of Indigenous parentage. Since it's a small friendly school, it costs the taxpayer $24,900 above the Gonski resource standard to educate a, school, a student at this school. The school receives only $91,000 from the federal government and $360,490 from the state government, $3,000 from fees and $18,000 from private fundraising. But capital grants in the last three years have been $218,190. All this money is well spent. The NAPLAN results are above average. So congratulations to the principals and teachers and students at this little country school who've been through the COVID ringer at the end of 2022. May your 2023 be much brighter. Congratulations, Elphinstone Primary. You are our Great State School of the Week. Well, listeners, uh, we thank you for being with us, uh, not only in 2022, but we hope in 2023. And we do sincerely hope that it's a better year even than last year. Uh, and uh, we have to thank Dale particularly for, for the program today, but we also have to think, thank her for the program that we had last week when the rest of us were on holiday. But Dale doesn't go on holiday and the dogs don't go on holiday. 
So we thank um, Oliver too, uh, who's been with us, and the time has gone. So for the moment, it's bye for now. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.